Hey, welcome to the Cherry Hills podcast. This fall, we are rejoining and concluding our series in the Gospel of Mark, where we're learning the way of Jesus together. Thanks for joining us. Well, good morning, everybody. We will continue the tradition we've been practicing from this summer, where we will receive God's word for us this morning. After Audra reads uh, the text, she will say, this is the word of the Lord, and we will respond by saying, thanks be to God. A reading from the book of Mark, chapter 14. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, He fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough! The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Have you ever gone through a season in your life where you have just felt utterly and completely alone? Like I'm talking, you couldn't even sense God's presence with you there. The ancient monastics had a phrase for this. They called it the dark night of the soul. And it's more than just a feeling of being lonely or depressed. I've experienced both of those as well. But the dark night is used to describe a crisis of faith or a difficult, painful period in one's life. I've experienced this before. When I was in seminary, I was at a very challenging seminary where every day my faith was being bombarded with questions and I was having a crisis of faith. I can actually still remember, I could take you right now to the room in the library that I would go to after some of the lectures that I would hear and I would just cry out to the Lord. I couldn't sense his presence anymore. I was experiencing what I would just call a dark night of the soul, where everything felt lost and hopeless to me. I was questioning my purpose. I was questioning God's purpose for me and whether he even existed. And I'm sharing that today because as we continue our series called The Way of Jesus, he is going to go through a dark night of the soul, literally one night, and he's going to do it for us. And if you've been joining us throughout this series, you know, we've been spending about two years off and on walking through the gospel of Mark together, but we are getting closer to the end. We will actually finish it up in the next few weeks. And as we head there, we're now heading towards the cross of Jesus Christ and what waits for him there. And last week is when this turn really happened. If you weren't here, 
Uh, we read two stories about two dinners that Jesus shared. One is a dinner where a woman came and offered to anoint Jesus with this very expensive bottle of perfume. And we were told in that story that this was to prepare him for his burial. And then he shares another dinner with his close friends where he reinterprets the Passover, the Passover supper, which was meant to be a a reminder to the Israelite people that a lamb is what saved them. And Jesus says, that is now me. I'm going to give myself to you for a new covenant that will be made in my blood. And this is where we pick up our story today, our section. Today, Jesus is going to go from sharing a meal with his friends to by the end of our story today, his friends will have completely abandoned him and left him alone. Well, if you're following with me on your notes today, I'll put it like this. When the time of his suffering came, Jesus was all alone. And so if you haven't already, I'd invite you, if you brought your Bible with you today, which we encourage, you can turn to Mark chapter 4. We're going to be starting in verse 26. If you don't have a Bible with you, we always provide some in the seat underneath you. Love for you to grab a copy of God's Word there. You can find this story on page 827 of those black Bibles. If you don't own a Bible, please take that home with you today. We'd love for you to have a copy of God's Word with you. We'll also have it up on the screen. But as we look at this story today, we're going to go through three three scenes where Jesus goes through more and more aloneness. So let's pick it up in verse 26. This is right after the Passover meal. And we read, when they had sung a hymn, they went to the Mount of Olives. So they just finished their supper. They sing a psalm, probably one of the Hallel Psalms from Psalm 115 to 118. And they go to the Mount of Olives. Now, it's always important to remind ourselves, these are actual events. These aren't just myths made up in the Bible. This took place in actual places. And here is a map of this story right now. I'm not sure how clearly you can see it, but you can probably down in the left-hand corner, excuse me, the right, yeah, left-hand corner, that's where they shared the Last Supper, most people believe. And then they make their way up all the way to the upper right-hand corner to Gethsemane and then to the Mount of Olives, which is also where Gethsemane, which we're going to see here, is. And as they're walking there, Jesus tells them not only are one of them going to betray him, he already mentioned that, Judas would betray him, but actually all of them this very night are going to fall away. And he quotes this prophecy from Zechariah. In verse 27, you can pick it up with me here. He says, you will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Now, why is Jesus quoting this passage from Zechariah here? I think it's very important for us to understand as we make our way towards the cross. If you're following on your notes, Jesus wants us to know his suffering and death was divinely ordained. This is not a surprise what's happening to God or to Jesus. From Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned and humanity fell into sin, under God's judgment, God has been working all of human history towards this singular event, the event of the cross. The entire Old Testament points to it. We just saw last week the Passover meal ultimately points to Jesus. This is and always has been God's design, that the good shepherd, will lay down his life for his sheep, even though these very sheep will abandon him when he needs them the most. But here's the good news. Not only has Jesus' death been ordained throughout history, he reminds his disciples, again, if you're following, so is his resurrection and victory. 
I love verse 28. It's this little glimmer of hope in this very dark night. It says, but after I have risen, after I have risen, I will go ahead of you in Galilee. I love that. And here's the point. God is in total control of this whole situation. He has planned this from the beginning. Jesus will die, but he will rise again and claim the victory that God has been pursuing since the moment humanity fell into sin. Now, the funny thing is, of course, we've seen this the entire study of Mark. The disciples still have no clue what Jesus is talking about. They think still that Jesus has come to bring a revolution for the Jewish people against the Roman Empire. And Jesus has been trying to explain, no, 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 I have a bigger revolution in mind. I want to claim victory, not over Rome, but over sin and death itself. Verse 29, I love this. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Good old Peter, right? Never knows when to shut up. So proud, so sure of himself. Some of you know a couple of years, or it was actually just last summer, I got to compete in the transplant Olympics. And I was on a basketball team representing Team Illinois, and we didn't have a very good chance to win. We came up against this team in Louisiana, and they were talking smack, right? We have, they're, they're not going to lose. They had like a guy who played D1 basketball on their team. And I was just expecting this to be kind of a friendly thing, the transplant games, right? Like we've all experienced this incredible miracle. Oh, no. They took this so seriously. And before the game started, like it was, it was on. It was on. They were like Peter, right? Verse 30. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, Today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows, you yourself would disown me three times. Verse 31, I love this. But Peter insisted emphatically. In Greek, the idea here is actually he's angry that Jesus is questioning him. (laughs) Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. Proverbs 16, 18 painfully reminds us pride comes before the fall. And Peter is about to fall. Just like Louisiana basketball fell. (laughs) Now, I know all of us would love to think that I would have succeeded where Peter failed, right? We would all think, oh, how could they leave him? How could they ditch them? But you will never understand the gospel unless you understand that we are all Peter. That we, like sheep, have all turned our backs on Jesus at one time. We have all gone astray. Jesus' dark night continues in verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. The word Gethsemane is literally Hebrew or Aramaic for an olive press. So this would have been a garden of olives where they would have gathered the olives and pressed them into olive oil, which is a fitting place for Jesus to be as he is about to be pressed to the limit. Verse 33, he took Peter, James, and John along with him. These are his three closest friends. And he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. Now, again, in English, sometimes we can't get the full meaning of this. Literally, the idea here is Jesus experienced dread. It's just not just like medium, like, oh, I'm a little bit stressed out about what's, what I'm about to face. He is dreading. You're following. Jesus knew what is coming and is experiencing deep 
dread. Now, if you don't know this, uh, cults and other religions, when they attack Christianity, they usually attack one of two things, either Jesus' humanity or Jesus' divinity. And I just want to say, for those who attack Jesus' humanity, there's no place better to look than Gethsemane to recognize that Jesus was fully human and experienced this complete and utter dread and distress and anguish. His distress continues in verse 34. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Jesus quotes some of what we call the lament psalms here. For example, in Psalm 6, 3, we read, My soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord? How long? Or how about this one from Psalm 31, 9? Be merciful to me, Lord, for I am in distress. My eyes grow weak with sorrow, my soul and body with grief. Jesus is experiencing this deep sorrow. It feels like he's dying. Friends, I just have to say, and this is for me too, no matter how dark of a night I may be going through in my life, nothing in my life, nothing in your life will ever compare to the depths of agony and pain that our Savior endured this night. If you're following, nothing will ever compare to Jesus' anguish in Gethsemane. I am not saying that to diminish our dark nights. I'll come back to that at the end, though, and why I'm saying that. Verse 35, going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Now, just to piece this night together for us from the other gospels, we learn from Luke that he goes down on his knees and then he goes down to his face. On his face, he cries out three times the same prayer. And let me just say to you, these weren't whispers. We read in Hebrews 5, 7, that during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions, listen, with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. The disciples witnessed this as they're only a stone's throw away from him. They could see him prostrate himself on the ground, crying out. We're told in Luke's gospel as well that he is sweating drops of blood, which is an actual medical condition. He is in anguish. Now, what does he pray? As he finds himself in this place, would you read the first part of verse 36 with me out loud on your notes there? Let's read this with some passion like he would have said it. Are you ready? Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me three times. He prays this agonizing prayer. Now, what exactly is Jesus praying here for God to remove the cup from him? In the Old Testament, if you're following on your notes, the cup is a picture of God's wrath and judgment of sin. For example, Psalm 75, verses 7 and 8, we read, It is God who judges. He brings one down. He exalts another. In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out, and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. As a good and just God, he will come and judge the earth of wicked and evil. 
But according to Isaiah 53, according to Jesus himself, just last week in the Passover, he is going to take that judgment upon himself. Look at Isaiah 53, 4 through 6 here on the screen. This is written, I remind you, 700 years before Jesus came to earth. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. No, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. That is the root of sin. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And he would drink the cup. Friends, this is what theologians refer to as the great exchange. The great exchange. Where, if you're following, Jesus exchanged our sin for his righteousness. That's the most unfair trade in human history. Jesus took the cup that I deserved, and he exchanged it for his righteousness. Paul explains it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.21. I would love for you to read this out loud with me. It's an incredible truth. It says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Maybe you've heard this your whole life, but it never ceases to amaze me. He took what I deserved, he drank the cup that I deserved, and exchanged that for his righteousness, so that I can be made holy and pure in his sight that I can be adopted into his family as his son, as his daughter. If you're falling on your notes, Jesus drank the cup so that we would not have to. Maybe you're here today, you don't know him personally. I just want to say to you, Jesus drank the cup so that you would not have to. Maybe you've heard it a million times, but can I remind you, Jesus drank the cup so that you would not have to, so that I would not have to. It's no wonder we hear him crying out, in the garden. It is not for the physical pain that awaits him that Jesus is crying out in anguish. It is because he knows that on his back he will carry every sin and crime and act of malice and every injury and cowardice and evil that has ever existed in this world. This is what brings him to his knees on this dark night. I cannot imagine no matter how hard I've had it in certain areas of my life, I cannot imagine the weight on his back. But that's not all he prays. Look at the rest of his prayer in the rest of verse 36. In fact, let's read it out loud together. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Oh, man. Incredible. If you're following in his distress, Jesus still chooses obedience to his father. This has been a theme in his whole life. We've seen it, right, all through Mark. We're told, even at the age of 12, right, do you remember this story when he loses his parents and they're worried and they go back and they find him in the temple and he's like, what, do you, what did you expect? Didn't you know I would be in my father's house? I could quote many verses in the Gospel of John. One of them is, my food is to do the will of 
him who sent me and to finish his work. That's why he came, to submit himself to the Father in death. In this dark night, Jesus prays what he teaches all of us to pray, right? Your kingdom come. Your will be done. That is the hardest prayer to pray in life. And yet, Jesus does it. Even on the darkest of nights, he says, I will carry the cross. I will drink the cup. Now, friends, I want you to notice something important here. It's always important to make connections to the whole Bible. It's just one story. We're in a garden right now. Does that remind you of another garden, perhaps? The Garden of Eden? Where Adam and Eve looked at God and they said to him, not your will, but mine be done. And ever since then, all of us have said that. All of us have said that. Not your will. I want my will to be done here. I'm turning my back on you. I want to be my own God. And now we come to a different garden where the second Adam, as Paul calls him, says, no, 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 not my will. Your will be done. The story comes to full circle, full redemption. If you're following on your notes, while Eden brought death, Gethsemane brings new life. All because the new Adam did what none of us could do. He lived a life of submission free from sin in order to drink the cup. Verse 37, then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall in temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. How true this is, right? The spirit describing the, the part of a human, right? Who, which is our will, our desire, our flesh describing our bodies, our weakness. How true is this of me, right? My spirit says I'm not going to eat past 7 p.m., My flesh says, oh, yes, you are. (laughs) My spirit is willing, but my flesh is weak. This section in the garden finishes this way. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he said, he found again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. It's time. And thank the Lord the issue has been settled. He will drink the cup. He will submit to his Father's will. And as we're told in Hebrews, he now sets his face with joy to the cross that awaits him. Now, if he didn't feel alone already at this point, we'll just finish it up in this final scene of our passage. Let's pick it up in verse 43. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the 12, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. This would have been the traditional greeting, still is in the Middle East, kisses on both cheeks. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. I can't imagine acting like this is just another normal night in his shoes. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Again, what are the disciples thinking? They're thinking right now, this is the moment. This is the moment we overthrow Rome. 
So Peter, we're told in other gospels, pulls out his sword. He cuts off the ear of the high priest. We know his name was Malchus. Jesus ends up healing the high priest's ear here, or the servant of the high priest, excuse me. He ends up healing him here, and he says to them, listen, am I leading a rebellion? That you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you teaching you in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. Now read that last part. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. This is all part of my plan. Verse 50, then everyone deserted him and fled. And here we see Jesus' prediction from Zechariah come true. The sheep have scattered indeed. Those who had short time earlier said, oh, we won't leave you. Gone like a flash. Verse 51, one of the weirdest two verses in the Bible. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Now, church tradition said this might have been Mark, the author of this gospel. We don't know for sure, but the reason I think it's put here is just to say this guy was so desperate to get away from Jesus, he left naked. Everybody left him. He is totally and utterly alone. He is going to drink the cup by himself that awaits him. The great exchange has begun. Now, I will say this dark night continues. We'll be looking at it in the next couple of weeks here. But for today, we're just going to pause and ask ourselves, so what? What does this mean for me? What does this mean for us still today, 2,000 years later? And I think there's very two clear meanings for us to apply to our lives as his followers today. The first one is simply this. When we face hardship, we can turn to dependent prayer. We can follow his example, friends. When you are in the dark night, when you're in your own Gethsemane, no matter how hard things become, you can always get on your knees. You can always get on your face. And you can always turn to him in prayer. And here's the best part. You can be honest with him. You don't have to fake how hard things are. You can tell him the truth. My soul is in anguish, Lord. He he wants you to say that. Take this burden from me. Why do I have to go through this right now? Do you feel bad saying those kinds of things? I got to be more spiritual than that. Jesus prayed in agony and anguish. If there's any other way. And he invites us to do the same. You don't have to pretend that you're not hurting. We don't have to just be shiny, happy people all the time. We can bring the burdens we carry to him in honesty. What an invitation that is. Yet, ultimately, the purpose of this kind of dependent prayer, if you're following, is aligning our will with God's will. Jesus faced the same temptation we all face. Just like the disciples, he was tempted to run away from the cup of suffering, find another way to accomplish his purpose. And yet he prays at the end of it, not my will, but your will be done. And it's only when we pray that, that we can align our lives with God, trusting even in this hardship, you must have a greater purpose than I can possibly see. Have you ever experienced this? 
You find yourself in the dark night, in the hardship, and you finally come through it and you recognize, oh, now I see. Friends, I can't promise you that God will always deliver you from your hardship. But what I can promise is that he will deliver you through it. And you will come out a different person. If you're following on your notes, God may not deliver us from it, whatever it is for you, but he will deliver it, deliver you through it. I mentioned my dark night at seminary, day after day in that library, on my knees, on my face. Why, Lord? And I can look back now, and I know exactly why. I want to be clear here. I would have not chosen that. But I needed to understand that my relationship with God is not based on just some emotional response. And I also needed to make my faith my own instead of my parents. And so he put me through this difficult crucible. And I can look back and now I can actually thank him, kind of. Because I know the purpose. You brought me through it. And I'm different because of it. He promises to refine us more and more into the likeness of Jesus, but he sometimes uses hardship to do it. Are we willing to say, not my will, but your will be done? Where does that prayer need to be prayed in your life right now? Is it in a temptation? Not my will, Lord, please, but your will be done. Give me the strength and the courage that you gave Jesus to overcome. Are you in a dark night right now? Not my will, but your will be done. Do in this time what I can't see right now. Bring me through this as a better person. The second application of this text, and this is for me the primary application, if you're following, is that no matter how alone I feel, Jesus is always with me. I got to say, when I wrote that down, I was like, oh, that's so cliche. Hey, everybody, Jesus is with you. But can we just put this in the context of Gethsemane for a minute? Jesus accepted that he would be abandoned and left alone. Why? Why did he do all of that? So that you would never be left alone. So that we would never be abandoned. To be human is to suffer, amen? But... Jesus, unlike any other God out there that people claim, he entered into our suffering. He entered into your loneliness. He entered into your depression, into your anxiety, into your trials, into your hardships. Why? So that we would not be alone, now or forever. He drank the cup. And what that means to me, I don't know if this means it to you. It's not only that he suffered for me, it's that he suffers with me when I suffer. Some of you know there's a difference between sympathy and empathy. Sympathy is where I say, ah, I'm really sorry, you have to go through that. Empathy is the person who sits with you through that. Empathy is I'm with you right now. I'm grieving with you. It's a big difference. Jesus empathizes with you. He sits with you in his suffering. 
He went through what we can't even imagine so that he could be with you, even in your loneliness and anxiety and depression and struggles and hardships and temptations. All you need to do is study this passage carefully to see. He suffered pain that we suffer, emotions that we feel. He experienced fatigue and hunger and anger and indignation and frustration, overwhelming sorrow and distress. He felt the abandonment of his closest friends. All so that he could be with us. The author of Hebrews writes about this more than any other author. I'm going to actually read larger portion of this because I think some of us need to be reminded of this today. Jesus is just not some abstract God sitting on a throne. He is here with you right now, and he empathizes with you wherever you find yourself today. And so we'll start in verse chapter 2. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, that's you if you're a follower. He's bringing you to glory. It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power over death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. That's what happened when he drank the cup. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is also able to help those who are being tempted. And then he picks it up in chapter 4 with these verses. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Can you read the rest of this with me out loud? For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Friends, if you hear nothing else this morning, Nothing else. I just want you to hear this. No matter how lonely, anxious, depressed, abandoned you feel, no matter if you're in the dark night of the soul right now and you don't know when it's going to end, we have a high priest who doesn't just sympathize with you. He empathizes with you because if you're on your notes, he went through hell so that we may never be alone again. I cannot promise he will take away your hardship right now, but I can promise you are not alone in it. And so with that in mind, I want to read over us. In fact, I'll invite all of us to do this from Deuteronomy 31, one of the most amazing promises in Scripture. Maybe you are in the middle of a dark night right now yourself, and you just need to sit and listen to this. Let this church family read this over you. But this is the promise of with. This is the promise of with 
that Jesus guaranteed for us on that dark night. Would you join me? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here this morning, myself as well, that this truth would sink deep into our soul. You will never leave us or forsake us. And you prove that by taking the cup. And now, Lord, as we prepare to take the bread and the cup, I pray it wouldn't just become another thing we do today, a rote experience and worship, but it will take on new meaning that you are a God unlike any other God. You are a God who doesn't just sympathize, but you empathize. You took the weight of our sin and judgment upon yourself. You took the weight of death upon yourself so that we may be with you now and forever. Amen. We never want anybody to feel uncomfortable as we take communion here. So just a couple things to know. If you know Jesus as the one who took your cup on that cross, you're more than welcome to participate with us, whether you go to this church or not. However, if you're still on the way asking questions, uncertain about what it would mean to live a life following him, we would ask that you would let this pass. Now, before we take communion together, I have asked the the band if they would play a song. It's a song about Gethsemane. So let's just receive this today as we prepare our hearts for what exactly this means and what Jesus endured. Thank you for listening to this week's teaching. If you'd like more info on our church, you can visit our website or find us on Facebook.